Well, church, why don't we uh, turn to Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. 1 Timothy 5, verse And we can uh, stand together and read the Word of God. Just like in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wants and pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse off than an unbeliever. Let's pray. Lord, these words have uh, reverberated through, <laughs> through the, for two, two, throughout 2,000 years, Lord, in terms of influence. And today we are privileged to be able to uh, learn from them as well this morning. Um, we at Genesis House don't have that many widows. In fact, we have zero. But it doesn't mean at this point that the scriptures don't apply to us in terms of the future. And as we're going to learn, uh, widows aren't only in mind, Lord. You think of all destitute people who are in need. And so uh, we want to just uh, give you thanks for this time and uh, ask you to guide me into truth the way your spirit always does. In Christ's name, amen. So I titled uh, today's message, uh, Caring for God's Destitute People. Caring for God's Destitute People. And so before we jump in, let me remind you of where we left off last week. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, you'll remember that we looked at Paul's instruction to us on how to confront sin in the church, especially with various members of different gender and different age. And remember the key principle was, approach them as if they were your family members. So if you want to confront sin, approach them like a sister, a brother, a father and mother, and this will, this will be the way to confront sin. Today we're looking at a different topic within the church family, and this is the church's mandate in providing provisionary care for those who are destitute. And in this context, the widows in Ephesus were the prevalent. So really the question that Paul was addressing was that he needed to help Timothy understand was really who was the church truly responsible for in terms of providing long-term financial care? Was it every widow that attended or just a few? And if not, if it wasn't, if it was just a few, I should say, what was the criteria they would use to, deter, to determine this? And so today we're going to unpack two key principles to determine who qualified for the church's care and who didn't. And I'll give them to you now. The first principle was this. The church was to support a widow when she was left alone, meaning there was no family present there to give her any financial aid. So she was literally... Uh, destitute in that way. Without, there was no family, so she was completely dependent on the church. Number two, 
she must have exemplified a godly character and she ha whose life was marked by prayer. Those are the two qualifications that Paul addresses in this text. So let's dive in now into verse 3. Paul says here, Honor widows who are widows indeed. Now the word honor, the word honor obviously carries the idea of respect. And, you, and there was different ways, of course, uh, 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 someone could respect or, or, or honor a parent. Or I uh, should say, in this case, a widow, a female. A female. Now, of course, um, this, of course, there are many ways in which this could be shown. But what Paul primarily has in mind here, based on the entire context of 3 verses 8, is financial. The way to honor was to pr pr provide financial support for Verse 4 makes this clear. He says, You must fr first learn to practice piety in regard to your family, especially in making a return to their parents. And verse 8 makes this very clear. Who, does not, who doesn't provide for their own, especially for his household, has denied the faith. So again, it's pretty clear financial is in mind here. That's the way you honor your parent, your mom, who's been widowed. Now, he says here that to, to wi honor widows who are widows indeed. This word indeed is really another word saying who are truly widows. Who are to distinguish between who are not widows and who are widows in terms of who needs the church's support. So it's a way of saying honor the real widows or honor the true widows that, Paul, that, that, that the church needs to take care of. Now what's important about this is this is not a new principle in the New Testament. This is actually a principle adopted from the Old Testament. You see, God in the Old Testament had a deep concern for the protection and provision of widows. So much so that within the law of Moses, there were laws there to prevent any mistreatment of them and that they'd be fully protected and provided for. Now, like, there's many, many verses that talk about this, but I want to give you one that's my favorite. It comes in Deuteronomy 17, 27, 17 through 21. I'll read it to you. He says, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for a foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. This is important here. He's, he's leaving the agricultural produce behind for the provisionary care of widows. That was Israel's mandate. But not only, notice here too that not only this is God's heart in terms of this, there's a blessing that comes if you did so. There's a blessing. He actually says, do this so that God may bless you in all, all of your works of your hands. So if you honor the widow, the crops go better. If you don't honor the widow, the, fathers, the crops don't go as well. I mean, there was a direct uh, correlation between blessing and cursing. And I, I should say this, on the flip side was cursing. In Jeremiah 22, we see a cursing to Israel for not taking care of the widow. Now this is important though, to see that 
God's heart is, of course, bent towards the protection of the people who could be potentially destitute and could not take care of themselves. But it extended beyond widows. Notice he says the foreigner. This was a Gentile that came into the Israelite community. And how about the fatherless, an orphan? An orphan was to be taken care of the same way as a widow. And I think that's a key principle here. Because, I mean, he's saying this. My heart is for people that are destitute, that are going to be in complete poverty without my love and care. Widow, of course, in the context of Ephesus, is one of those people. Now, there's two key, two key caveats, though, I have to make in terms of this, this text in Deuteronomy 27. First, in terms of long-term provision, notice that even the widow and the foreigner had to work for their food. <laughs> there weren't free handouts in God's economy. Those of you who are studying Ruth, what did Ruth do? She went into the fields to do what? Glean, Glean right? That's what she did. And she was not Israelite. She was a Moabite. But God made her work for her food. That's really important. Number two. Second, if these people wanted long-term provision, they had to become part of God's people to receive it. Again, those of you studying Ruth, Naomi and Ruth had a conversation, and Ruth said, I will, be, I will start to worship your God and be part of, be part of worshiping uh, Jehovah. And so, therefore, she could go into the fields and glean in the fields of Boaz. A foreigner had to become a proselyte. They had to observe the Sabbath. They had to get circumcised. They had to follow the law of Moses. This is important. So, again, these two caveats in terms of long-term care. One, you had to be part of God's people. Two, you had to work for your food. You couldn't just get free handouts. That didn't exist in God's economy. So now we go to the New Testament with Paul. And here he says, Honor widows who are those of indeed. So again, we get the church's responsibility is to take care of those who are widows. But we're going to see these principles come back into play in a second here. But there were times when the, when the responsibility fell outside the church and it was not the church's responsibility. And that's in verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren... They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. What, makes, what Paul makes clear here is this. The church is not responsible for the care of widows when she has dependents, such as children and grandchildren, available to take care of her. This is important because this principle about family taking care of people, of widows, is also a principle rooted in Old Testament scriptures. Do you remember the commandment, the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. This honor included, the word to honor was actually in the area of finances as part of this honoring. This is obvious in the debate Jesus had with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. Remember what he said, what happened there? Uh, the disciples are eating food without washed hands. And uh, the, the um, Pharisees say, what are your disciples doing? They're, they're neglecting the traditions of the elders and, uh, and they're basically like not obeying our law and therefore there's something wrong with them. And Jesus said to him, uh, by the way, do you understand that you're hypocritical in what you're saying here? 
and they're, and they're like, and they're like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you have a principle called Corbin, and Corbin was this idea that you could set aside money, set aside money dedicated to God. And so what these Pharisees were doing was setting aside this money dedicated or pledged to God, and by doing so, neglecting the fifth commandment, not giving to their parents. And so they were intentionally letting their parents go hungry or not providing for them because they quote-unquote made a pledge to the Lord. And he says, do you realize how you actually are hypocritical because you're disobeying the Mosaic Law in doing this? So again, there, when, when you read the fifth commandment in Exodus to honor your parents, clearly by this conversation, Jesus always had in mind, or God had in mind, right from the beginning, was this idea of financial responsibility when they were in need. Obviously, Proverbs uh, talks about uh, parents and grandparents handing down wealth and inheritances to children. That's the norm. But there are unforeseen circumstances in which people become destitute as parents. Another way God sought to provide uh, for widows through family in the Old Testament in the law was something called a leveret marriage. L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. A leveret marriage. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Um, this is where if a husband died, the brother of the deceased was to take the woman in and, and, and marry her to provide for her. If no brother, that, then an, a relative could take um, the, uh, the woman, again, all for provisionary care. Again, you women and Ruth know all about this. That's exactly what Boaz did with Ruth. There was no brother present and Boaz as a relative was allowed to take Ruth in to provide for her to make sure she didn't become destitute as a foreigner in the land. So again, this, this New Testament principle of family taking care and making a return to the parents is rooted in the Old Testament. And where there were dependents present, the church is no longer responsible. It's up to the children and grandchildren to be dutiful by taking care of her and making some return. And I love that word, making a return. It's like Paul saying this, Hey, kids, uh, you remember how your mother constantly made sacrifices to put food on the table? To make sure you're always fed? There were snacks after you came back from school? How she always washed your clothes? Planned your summer holidays? Spent hours on the internet looking for your swimming lesson times and your guitar lessons and who the best teachers were? Sent you to SABC camp and made sure you're going to be taken care of there with good friends? How she shopped at you for, shopped for you for a new iPad at Christmas. Remember all that? Well, listen, listen, kids. Get off your duff. Open up your wallet. It's time that you do some return. It's time for payback. Paul gives two reminders as to why a return is important. First is found in verse 8. He says, if you don't, if you do not provide for your own, especially those of your household, you've denied the faith and you're worse off an unbeliever. Pretty strong. We'll get to that at the end. But the second one is actually spoken in the positive here. Notice in verse 4 in part B, he says, if you do this, this is acceptable in the sight of God. Making a return to your parents is acceptable in the sight of God. So not only was this pleasing to the parents, to, or the, to the mother, to receive this care, this was pleasing to the Lord. And of course this would be pleasing to God. It models his heart that we saw in the law. 
<laughs> taking care of those who are potentially destitute, can't provide for themselves. It shows compassion. It shows mercy and self-sacrifice. All the things that he is and all the things he's demonstrated in his law. But I thought of something here, and, it, and it's obvious in the text, but I never noticed this before until my studies this week. It's obvious here that Paul assumes then that the kids must be believers. He assumes they're believers, not non-Christians in this principle. Why? Why would he make the comment, this is acceptable in the sight of God, to a non-Christian? <laughs> they don't care whether God cares about what they would make a return to the parents or not. They're not thinking about doing this for the Lord. That's not their motivation in doing so. Secondly, verse 8 makes no sense unless he assumes they're believers. If anyone does not provide for his own household, he's denied the faith. Again, he assumes that this person, these, these kids and grandchildren, are Christian people. And that doesn't change the text at all, really, but it is just for, uh, 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 for fun observation that I noticed in my studies. Okay, so the first quality in the church's support is she must be left alone in terms of having no financial support and no family or kids to provide for her in any way. The second one is an issue of character. And we pick this up in verse 5. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has, left, has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. For someone to fix their hope on God, for a woman to do this, would mean that they would see themselves as being fully dependent on Him. Full dependence on Him. If you read the Psalms, I can give them to you later if you want, the Psalms are full of people who fix their hope on God and it shows a dependence on the Lord. A, woman, a, wo a widow who had been left alone, of course, who had no husband and no children and grandchildren to provide, would of course be completely dependent on the Lord. She was the kind of woman that truly understood Jesus' words to the disciples in Luke chapter 12 and verse 22. When he said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will wear. I mean, she truly had to, to uh, think in those terms. And again, he says in verse 29, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, do not worry, for the pagan worries about these things, but your father knows that you need them. Seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. She truly lived in knowing that experience. And she, she would have understood the Lord's words very clearly from Luke 12. But to fix her hope on him was not just to, to depend upon him for provisionary care. The word to fix your hope is this to, on the Lord is a definition of what it is to be a Christian. <coughs> That's what it is to be a believer. You can read about that in places like 1 Peter chapter 1, which we studied a couple years ago. That's what it is to be a Christian. But part of her fixing her hope then was a second quality. She was to be one who had a devoted prayer life. She was one who prayed night and day. Now when I first read this, I thought that Paul was really just describing the character of a godly woman, that she prays night and day. I have no doubt that that is a true description of a godly woman, and I have no doubt that that is included in her character. But I want to suggest something different from the text. I would suggest that what, to pray night and day here in terms of being honored and supported by the church 
had more to do, not just to do with her character, but actually described her vocation. If she wanted to be supported by the church, she was to make her job to be a prayer warrior. You see, we've already seen the principle in Scripture. There's no place in the Bible where you give long-term money and support to people who are lazy and don't do anything. But how can a widow work? She's already a widow and destitute because she can't work. She has nothing to offer in terms of financial care or jobs. But what can she do? What can she do? She can pray. She can pray night and day. And beyond the normal person. So again, if I were to ask you, those of you who are married, how, how, much, how much time do you spend in family? Versus how much time do you spend in prayer? Okay? What if you had no family? How much more time could you have for devoting yourself to the prayer? Quite a big difference. 1 Corinthians 7 highlights this principle. I'm going to read from verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern, Paul says. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Interesting, he's talking to a Christian. They're both Christian, but he still calls the interests divided. One's the Lord's affairs and one's over here in terms of being married. Then he says this, an unmarried woman, i.e. a widow, or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Interesting. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in the right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. This is pretty cool. A woman who's a widow has time differently than a woman who's married to devote herself night and day to prayer. It's her vocation now as a widowed person and in doing so, she will receive support from the church. A great principle, actually a great, um, a great passage and a woman that may have come to mind as I've been speaking was Anna in Luke chapter 2. Listen to Luke chapter 2, 36, verses 38 about Anna in the temple. Jesus has been, uh, has been come up uh, with her as a baby, an infant, has come to the temple and has been gone through the purification rites and laws of, uh, of Moses. And so he's just a young one. And this prophetess Anna sees him and she comes up to them and talks to them and gives them a prophecy. But listen to her description. There was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. So let's say she got married at 21. She only had a husband for seven years till 28. She's 84 now. <laughs> That's a long time without a husband. But listen to this. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This woman would not have been in the temple night and day praying this way if she was still married to her husband. There's no way. There's no way. I know the tensions of ministry and family. I experience them every single day. And trust me, I'm not saying I'd rather be single than married and not have family. I'm not saying that at all. 
but I'm saying there's a tension that I just I am not free to devote myself to things like the study of the scriptures and to prayer the way I would be is if I was unmarried, if I was single. But I don't have the gift of singleness, and so which is another conversation for another time. So I'm glad I'm married. <laughs> okay, so this again, I hope you see this. And I, I actually I'm suggesting here that this was to be her vocation, not just a character trait. And if you want to push back in dialogue, I'm fine with that. The, um, I understand the, the tension there, but that's just an observation. But again, we can see why this would be important for the kind of woman to be like this in terms of her godliness, considering verse 6, the other type of widow in the church that was not to be supported. Listen to her character. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. This idea of wanton pleasure is the same word used in James 5.5 to talk about being self-indulgent. This is a woman who, a widow who lives luxuriously. Um, James 5 says it this way, uh, uh, they've spent the years on earth in luxury satisfying every desire. One of my commentators described this woman as being narcissistic. This is a woman who lives for herself. Her whole, all her pursuits are her own personal pleasures. And again, this is in stark contrast to the widow of verse 5 who's living for God. Who's, not, who's living for God and for others. Her prayer life is, I mean, she could take her entire Genesis house list and pray through every single name every single day. Every single day, month after month, year after year. That could be her ministry, praying for others. Praying for God's kingdom to be done on earth. The woman living for, for self-luxuries and, and for um, personal pleasures is not thinking about others. Doesn't care about God's kingdom. And Paul says, we don't support women like this, even if she's a widow. Character is key if you're going to support someone who's destitute. In this context, that was key, critical. She's living, Paul says, as though she's dead, even though she lives. What a statement. What a statement. She's alive physically, but she's dead. She might as well be dead, because spiritually there's nothing going on. She's alive in the body, but dead in God's eyes. This is totally dis a totally different description, an opposite to Jesus' comment in John chapter 11, verses 23. Remember? Lazarus dies, and Mary and Martha are panicked. And Martha runs up. I think it was Martha. Maybe it was Mary. But one of the sisters runs up and says, Jesus, my brother's gone. And you know what he says to her? He goes, your brother will rise again, Martha. And she said, Martha said, I know she, he will in the resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. This woman here is dead even though she lives. Complete opposite. Complete opposite. So as we can see then, the church in Ephesus has got some problems with the widows and family willing to take care of her. Some of the people there are not taking care of their own families. Some of the widows are living for wanton pleasure. And there's a whole mix in between. And so Paul gives Timothy instruction in verse 7. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. 
We've seen this word above reproach earlier in scripture, right? Remember the elders are to be above reproach, which means blameless. Prescribe and teach these things so that the church is blameless. Paul is concerned that Timothy tells the church, listen, our reputation is at stake here. Our reputation is at stake. This is really important to us. Prescribe and teach these things. Tell the people who have family there to get supporting their parents and make some return. Tell the widows who are not living in wanton pleasure, or who are living in wanton pleasure, listen, you're dead, even though you think you're alive. And listen, you better turn this around and repent and bring this back to the Lord. These are the things that Paul, or sorry, Timothy is to teach and prescribe. He wants the church to have a good reputation, not only in-house, but in the community, in Ephesus. In Ephesus. It's the gospel's at stake in these, in these issues. And so he makes one more final warning to those children and grandchildren who are not providing and not taking Timothy's instruction to heart. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse off than an unbeliever. I want to make a couple observations from this. The first one is the pronoun his and he. Notice who the responsibility for provisional care of a family is put on. There's no she in any of this text, or her. It's on the man. The pronoun is on the male gender. There's no expectation in God's economy for women to be providers. That's why there's no widowers list in this whole text, is there? Why? Because widow, widowers can provide for themselves. <laughs> they can work. That's God's primary role for them is to work. The women, a godly woman in Timothy, is one who works at home. We've already discussed that. That was the issue in chapter 2.15. They were forsaking their role to want to take eldership positions in the church. They wanted to have full-time ministry jobs and stuff like that. And God said, you've forsaken your role. That's not what God had created you for. This is important in terms of the context because, again, it's not that women couldn't, can't work or shouldn't work. It's just that families would be their primary object of affection and time. The biblical mandate is that women are always seen as the ones who are in need of provision, not to be the provider. So that's an important observation. So then he says now to the male, if you don't do this, you're... Um, you denied the faith and you're worse off than an unbeliever. There's a concern in the New Testament always that the Christian be at least as good as the pagan. At least as good as the pagan in morality. 1 Corinthians 5.1 It's actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you and of the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. There was incest, remember? So there's a, there's a moral code that even pagans don't even go to. How about Romans chapter 2? The Gentiles can instinctively do things of the law that the Jews aren't, even though they have the external law. So Paul says, uh, non-believing people can actually do, uh, can actually follow God's laws. And there's a public outcry that in many cases that they are followed. So again, there's always a concern in the New Testament that we be at least as good as the pagan in society. 
he's not telling a, a Christian man here that uh, that uh, an unbeliever is not one that wouldn't provide for somebody. He's actually saying this: unbelievers actually do find it morally acceptable and right to provide for their family. In fact, they think it's a good thing to do that. That's just a standard norm. He says, this is why he says, even even the pagan culture thinks that you, uh, this is a mandate that should be done. Then if you don't even reach the pagan standard, you're worse off than the unbeliever. You haven't even met the, the, the secular culture's moral code, never mind God's commands to honor your father and mother. Again, I think it's fair to say this, we're not talking about men who, like some of these widows, may have come upon hard times. I don't, I don't, this command is not this, you know, like Rob lost his job or, you know, uh, let's say, well, you quit your job to start your company. But let's say in the beginning, the first couple years are slow. You know, he's not saying to you, well, how dare you, like, for not bringing the same income as you did before. Or if someone loses their job uh, due to the, like Stuart did with the COVID situation, He's not saying that he's worse off an unbeliever because he can't provide for Laura in those times. Or what if he gets sick? Or what if he becomes paralyzed at work? And you don't have life insurance or something in place to cover those expenses. He's talking about men who have capacity to work, who are able-bodied, that have and could provide, but refuse to do so. Refuse to do so. Totally different camp that Paul is talking about. So again, this stands as a warning, a warning to believers that we are to provide for our own. I want to conclude with one verse, a beautiful story. We'll start with God's heart in the Old Testament, we'll end with God's heart in the New Testament. Jesus, John 19 verse 26, He's on the cross. His mother is there. He's pinned to the cross. No way of ever providing for him ever again, or her ever again. Can't do it. No way to make a return. He's done. He looks to John, his disciple, and he says this. To, well, actually, he says to his mom, Woman, here is your son. You're thinking, a reference to himself, not a chance. Here is your son. And then he turns to John and says, Here is your mother. <laughs> From that time on, John takes Mary under his provisionary care to take care of her with Jesus gone. Why not give him to the brothers? James and those guys, Jews, they're not Christians at this point. They're not Christians yet. Why would Jesus entrust entrust uh, his mother with God's principles and God's care and concerns with these people that don't even love the Lord himself. <laughs> Turns to John and says, would you take care of my mother? I'd be curious what happened when James and Jude and those guys became Christians, if it went back, resorted back to, to them or if John continued to take care of her. But that, I'll never know that answer until I get to glory. But think about this now. You want to know the heart of Christ? You want to know the heart of God? In his last dying breaths, where are his concerns? The salvation of one sinner and the concern of the taking care of one widow. <laughs> A lot of lessons in here, church. I've narrowed it down to three. 
but there's lots of spin-offs off of them. Number one, God endorses systems that take care of his, of his destitute followers. He endorses systems that take care of his destitute followers. That was clear in the Old Testament, orphans, widows, foreigners. That's clear in the New Testament, widows. And I would suggest uh, that the widows here uh, would have included more than just um, one who lost her husband. For example, let's say your husband was in prison. Or let's say that you were abandoned because you became a Christian. So watch, so 1 Corinthians uh, 7 teaching, right? If an unbeliever is married to an unbeliever and, and, she, and he leaves, right, what do you do? So she's been abandoned and so now there's no provisionary care and maybe the kids are still like the father and they don't love the Lord. She has no way of providing for herself. She's dedicated her whole life to family. There's nothing to do now. She's got no way of taking care of herself. I doubt t Paul was going to say, she doesn't count on the widow's list. He cares about his destitute followers. But remember the caveats. They have to be part of the people of God. He's not endorsing secular systems where we take long-term long -term care of, 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 others, of other people. They have to be followers. They have to commit to Christ in His ways. And number two, um, there has to be some sense in which they're working. Even if it's prayer. Even if their job is full-time prayer. God never hands out long-term care. I'm saying long-term care instead of short-term care. Like one-offs, I get it. Like gener acts of generosity, things like that. I understand. I'm talking about long-term sustained, sustained support. Su support? <laughs> long-term sustained support. These women were to pray. That could be their full-time vocation. So I just got to find my next, uh, my next lesson. Can I give you an example of what's happening right now in Pine Ridge? A young man who was destined to church plant. He's actually t taught at Genesis House in the first year of my ministry. His name's Caleb. Caleb was, his wife was all ready to be a family ma woman and looking forward to children, all sorts of things. Um, he was looking forward to being a church planner. He gets Lyme's disease. Absolutely crippled. He can't do anything. And he sat down with Dan one day. He goes, Dan, I'm useless. I'm just like totally depressed. Like I have nothing to offer. I can't provide. I can't do anything. And he was, he's gone through really dark times. His wife has now had to go back to school to get a career because he can't work long term. Unless the God heals her, heals him, they're trouble. You know what Dan said to him? He said, there is one thing you could do. Remember Anna? You can work. You can work. He says, I want you to become the prayer warrior night and day for Pine Ridge House. He says, I can do that. And you guess what? Pine Ridge has been faithful in providing for their needs these last five years. Faithful in providing for him. And it works perfectly in this system. He's, he's got a full-time job. And they are taking care of a destitute person. Lesson two. The church is to be discretionary in terms of the distribution of its resources for those who are in need. You want to talk about discretionary? You have to have a godly character. You have to have no family. And we're going to come to more discretions in verses 9 through 16 in the, in the next sermon. 
They didn't, just because you're a widow, it didn't mean you got ha money handed over fast. There were protocols and criteria in place if you made the list. Again, important. This is really important, I think, in, based on the context. And finally, lesson three. Family provisions fall on the male gender and failure to do so is to bring the Christian faith into disrepute. Family provisions fall on the male gender and failure to do so is to bring the Christian faith into disrepute. Even the pagan secular culture thinks that, you should, that, that it's good to take care of your family. And if these people are neglecting their family and not taking care of them in order for um, the church to do so, not a good reputation on the Church of God. Not in Ephesus, not anywhere.